to some degree also is there are those moments that are extremely satisfying. This is a problem and I can remove that problem that's bothering that person with, you know, my expertise. Those are really satisfying situations, but that's not the majority of the uh, time that I'd spend in clinical medicine. The majority of the time are much more complicated. They're not reductionist problems. That was Dr. Guy Lin, an ear, nose, and throat doctor, otherwise known as an ENT physician. He's a good friend. And in this episode, he's going to talk about his career, what it's like. And in the subsequent episode, he's going to talk about how he became a surgeon and how he decided to become an ENT physician. Similar to my previous guest, Dr. Nate Inoki, I will be splitting this guest interview into two separate episodes. So let's cue the intro. Hello, and welcome to Health Careers with Dr. Marn, where we have deep, personalized, and eye-opening conversations with various people in healthcare. We learn what it's really like to work in different health careers from people who are living it today. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Marn, and welcome. All right, folks, what's up? So today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Guy Lin, an ENT surgeon, an ENT physician, and uh, hopefully this will give you a better perspective and clear understanding of his specialty. Let me give you a little background on, on Dr. Lin here. So Dr. Guy Lin went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, where he majored in biological, biological basis of behavior. He then went straight to medical school at University of California, San Francisco, or UCSF. After that, he went to University of Pennsylvania, where he did his internship in surgery and his residency training in otolaryngology, or ENT, at University of Pennsylvania. He then went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where he did a clinical fellowship in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. Since finishing his training, he's been in a mix of academic and private practice, but mostly an emphasis on private practice. He is currently an assistant attending affiliated with Mount Sinai Medical System, but his main practice is with ENT and Allergy Associates, where he is a partner and has been practicing there for well over a decade. Today, I have uh, Dr. Guy Lin. How are you doing? I'm great, Rich. How are you? I am doing very well. Um, it's great that you're here. Uh, we've known each other for, what, over 10 years now, I think. Yeah. When we used to work at Mount Sinai. That's um, right. We were actually doing adult and pediatric ENT cases. Exactly. All right. Uh, to our listeners, can you tell the people what you do for a living, especially when someone asks you what you do and what your responsibilities are? Sure. I am an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and my subspecialties are in rhinology and facial plastics. So I'll break that down into more simple layman terms. It's, Certainly. It's a subspecialty within the surgical fields, specializing in the head and neck area. Within th that specialty, you can go on and further train. And I uh, did specialty fellowship training in facial plastics and rhinology. Uh, which is basically uh, 
a combination of reconstructive, cosmetic, surgeries, and uh, specialty in the sinuses. Does everybody that, and an abbreviation for ear, nose, and throat is ENT. That's right. Does everybody that goes through um, this specialty, they, do they all operate when they're in private practice or start practicing? No, not necessarily. The, the training is surgical, but a fair number of people may elect over time to exclusively devote their practices to um, office-based um, work. So that may not necessarily involve going to the operating room for more complicated cases. The majority of ear, nose, and throat um, surgeons generally do go to the operating room and do procedures. And, and keep in mind, just because you're not going to the operating room, there are a fair number of procedures done that don't require being placed under any type of general or local sedation. Um, like what kind of procedures are you doing that doesn't require surgery? Uh, you can deal with nosebleeds, uh, ear procedures such as the puncture of an eardrum for drainage purposes of an infection or fluid. Um, you could do biopsies. You could do needle biopsies in the office. Um, you can uh, clean a person's ear of foreign bodies or wax. You can remove foreign bodies from the nose and the throat. Uh, you can diagnose uh, certain ailments with the use of an uh, endoscope. So fiber optic mm -hmm. endoscopes are used to look down into the throat and into the nasal vault. Microscopes are used to look uh, closely at the eardrum. So there's a broad range of um, expertise that's done on also an office-based um, setting. Hey, Guy, but about your specific specialty, can you tell us about what you do, um, uh, like specifically what that is, entails sure. on a more detailed basis? Yeah, because of the nature of the work that I do spanning both, um, uh, how should I say it? So, so it's not a pure cosmetic practice. Uh, I deal with a lot of functional problems, people who can't breathe, mm -hmm. who have sinus issues. And so my bread and butter work is aiding patients in terms of helping them breathe better, whether it's from a assortment of sinonasal disorders or physical obstruction maybe due to trauma in the past. And a lot of patients will also seek out uh, some form of uh, aesthetic repair on their nose to give them a nicer appearance. So I, a lot of times we'll combine rhinoplasty with uh, some form of functional work to give them some improvement in their breathing. So that's the bread and butter of what I do. I see. Are you, um, is it often adult patients you're dealing with, uh, uh, kids, uh, combination? I'll see, yeah, I'll see anybody from birth through end of life uh, issues. Uh, but the majority of the patients are anywhere from, um, so I'll operate on small children who have adenoid issues mm -hmm. from a breathing perspective. And so they can range in age from approximately one year of age to, you know, as old as their 80s, 90s, although obviously the lower uh, age uh, and the higher up age ages are sort of like falling right off that bell curve. It's, the bell curve is right in the middle, anywhere between their 20s to their 50s. That's kind of the bulk of the practice. 
obviously you can do an ENT residency and then start working, but you went another year and did a fellowship, as you mentioned. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, good question. There, there is. I, I think that if you're practicing in a heavily populated, um, highly competitive urban setting, mm-hmm. it it is highly advantageous to have a unique and um, advantageous skill set to offer because it's it first it's very intimidating to be. Uh, within 10 to 20 blocks from numerous uh, tertiary care centers where there's heavy, heavy specialization where people who are not only maybe your mentors, but, you know, really well-established experts in their field are sort of competing with you for the same patient populations. So, you know, if you're practicing in an environment with low density, I think that's a different situation, but, you know, you have mm-hmm. to determine for yourself what's the environment that you're going to to settle upon for yourself. And so for, for that, you know, and then beyond that, just for personal gratification, it really is nice to complete your training and then dive into something deep and see, e- even though the training is a long and arduous process, to really craft your trade and dive deep into an area of focus gives you a tremendous amount of confidence before you go into practice. You know, obviously you finish a ENT residency and you can start mm-hmm. working, but what subspecialties of ENT can you do a fellowship in? What opportunities are there for an ENT doctor to subspecialize? Yeah, so um, interestingly, I, I don't know exactly how many years ago, but there were no fellowships Um Actually, fairly recently, I mean, the generation above me, above you and, me, and I, there's a number of people who specialize, but they didn't actually go through a fellowship process, right? So that's a relatively new uh, thing that developed uh, before our time, of course. But the five major subspecialties of ENT include pediatrics. Um, you can do pediatric. you can do all these areas of ENT that I'm about to mention, but you can further specialize and, um, and, and those five areas include pediatrics, neurotology, um, okay. rhinology, which is sinus, facial plastics, and uh, laryngology, which is expertise in voice and swallow disorders. I see. Um, and often these Additional training is only about another year on top of the ENT residency? Yeah, I think the exception to that is neurotology, which I believe in some cases is two years. Okay. Um, what in for your work, for your career, what is your typical day like? You know, what time, you know, when you when you come in, mm-hmm. how many patients you see, when you leave, who you're dealing with? Um, I usually operate once a week. Okay. And so those days are a little different than the days that I don't operate. But the four days out of the week that I don't operate, I'm usually starting in the office at around 8 in the morning. And usually I'm wrapping up my day by about 5.30 to 6 in the evening. It's a pretty busy day. I'm usually seeing about 30 to 40 patients in a day, which is, you know, it was going to be different during the first 5 to 10 years of my career, but now... 
as you develop more and more of a reputation and your patients start spreading the word, right. um, you become busier and busier. So it, and that's the thing about going into practice that you really are never taught is the, the element of being patient and organically growing your business through the good care that you provide one by one, one patient at a time. So you didn't learn that until you were actually working. You never learned how to procure patients or how to market yourself. Right. That that's not, that was never part of the uh, the training. The training was really just developing the the skill set so that you could um, you know come out of the training just well qualified to deal with the issues that you were going to face. But the realities of of being in practice. That's a whole other learning curve that really just begins day one when you go into practice for yourself. Is that something that you think that you could um, better prepared for? Or is it something that you just have to deal with it when you start working? You know, it's like anything else. It's like having a child. You, you, you know, you're, never, <laughs> you're never ready till it happens, right? Um, and sure, there's. I think there's, skills that you develop during the course of your lifetime that helps you in any situation. They're translatable skills, right? It's like your skill to network and your skill as just a human uh, connecting with other humans. And I think that the biggest mistake that I see a lot of new people make is that the amount of time that you spend outside of the practice building your practice could be just as consequential, consequential, if not more in terms of um, being successful in a practice. I mean, it's really important to build those relationships, whether it be the referring physician or um, ur local urgent cares or net, net, you know, there's all kinds of new networks that are constantly building. And, you know, when we started practice, social media really wasn't a thing. And now, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm definitely not somebody who partakes within social media at all. But, you know, the reality is that the way people are finding doctors now is very different than the way they were looking into it when we went into practice. So everything evolves and you have to be malleable just like any other, you know, I don't want to equate it necessarily with a business, but yeah, being in practice, you're like, you're running your own business essentially, right? Right. Do you think your same college colleagues feel the same way in terms of their preparation coming out that, you know, obviously um, you come out and you have to learn about the business of medicine? Or do you think some of your colleagues are were much more prepared and uh, in, instead of in start in, in terms of getting ready and and being able to get their name out there? Uh, and if so, what were they doing to that better prepared them? Yeah, that's, you know, there's different personalities. There's some personalities and, you know, from day one, they intend to go out and work for an institution. They don't want to have to uh, mm. go out and hustle for patients. They want to, the backing of the institution and to be, so not everybody, you know, has the ambitions to necessarily be involved in the business of medicine necessarily. And some people would love to go and work for an employer and not necessarily be a, uh, an employer themselves, right? Even if they don't go into academia. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, there's one particular 
resident senior to me that I recall. And he had, um, he moved uh, down south and he had this plan to start this huge operation from what I heard of him not long after he had left residencies. He had like a sleep center and maybe even an ambulatory center. You know, he had very high ambitions uh-huh. and was ready to hit the ground and run. And, you know, not everybody necessarily is to that degree ambitious. Or if you're in, if you're practicing in a place like New York City versus a more suburban or rural setting, the, the capital cost to starting stuff is going to limit how quickly you can move like that as well. So uh-huh. every situation is, is just unique into itself. What are the different venues that an ENT doctor can work in? So I think the first distinction is the kind of density of the population you want to be catering to. Um, and and um, I don't know the exact numbers, but there's approximately 200 residents that graduate in the discipline of ENT per year. And so, you know, you spread 200 residents over and, and also understand that those resi- those graduates are going to concentrate in usually clusters within the country where there's already a, uh, a well-met demand for those specialists, right? So that leaves right. a lot of the country with a huge demand for these specialists. Um, so what I would say is if, if you know, the, the beauty of being in a very small and and, you know the the ethics of that is a separate conversation but the beauty of being in a um in a specialty with a constrained number of trained individuals is that there's plenty of jobs around the country now maybe it's going to be a little bit less favorable to work in a big city than Mm -hmm. uh, than an area where that demand is unmet right But um, the second breakdown that I would say exists, um, like any physician making a decision what setting to practice in, is whether you go into academia or into private practice. Those are the two breakdowns. Um, And I think, you know, if you look at it that way, by geography, population density, academia versus private practice, I think that pretty much nails down your, um, your options and shows you the layout of the land. Is there any particular moment or uh, situation or, or patient encounter in your career where you believe your involvement really affected a person's outcome or re- or the result or even their life that you could share with us? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, the, the, you asked me that, you know, right before we um, we jumped on the call. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me that is a young woman that I cared for. My impact on her was short-lived because she was really sick. She um, she she had a, a terminal case of lymphoma and was mm-hmm. on heavy-duty um, chem- chemotherapeutics. And so she essentially had a, an absent immune system because of the powerful nature of the treatment that was used to treat her cancer she presented to me the first time i met her she presented to me with an invasive form of uh fungal disease within her sinuses and uh generally this type of presentation is deadly on you know and so i i see her 
uh, as an outpatient. She wasn't sick enough at that point, but immediately I had to make a decision to take her to the operating room and remove a very large portion of her uh, support uh, system that was holding up her nose. So she came out of that essentially with a deformity, but she lived wow. and she was in her thirties. She was married with, I think three children and she was extremely grateful. And, you know, it's, it's not always the, the situations as dramatic as I'm describing to you that are memorable um, because you, you have an opportunity to help people, even if it's not a life, life or death situation. But um, she made an impact on me because I remember not too long after that, maybe two or three years later, she started to get sent back to me by her oncologist. And there was concerns. Again, she was pounded with more chemotherapeutics because she had gone into remission and then redeveloped uh, a new uh, and much more aggressive form of her disease. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to really just throw things at her at all costs. Um, at that point, it became more of a, a question why such heroic efforts were being made. And, you know, along the way, I got to really know her and her family. And you never forget those situations where someone is so young. I think she was probably exactly the same age as I was at the time. And, you mm -hmm. know, you're leaving, but you, you know, it's, it's hard because you start to put yourself into that person's shoes and you think about the consequences of leaving behind small kids yeah. and a young family. And um, she was so graceful. And I remember getting a card from her husband after she passed and uh, they were very thankful about just the way that I was able to be a part of her care and, you know, even though I felt like I really didn't do much, right, because, you know, you define your success by the ability to save someone. And, you know, in this particular case, there was no saving her. She succumbed to her disease. And in my opinion, probably was over-treated because, you know, and, you know, you can't, you can't criticize that. Sometimes the patient is willing to do whatever it takes at all costs just to right. get another day, another week, another month. But anyway, the, the, yeah, it was a really, you know, till today I keep that card in my desk and every once in a while I'll open that drawer and, and <laughs> see it. And it's just a reminder, you know, how lucky we are to have what we have and to be involved in her life is a real, um, yeah, it was a real privilege. What are some of the favorite parts about your typical day? The thing about what I do is, um, I like to be involved in a lot of different things. So I, even though I have the specialties that I have, a large amount of what I do spreads across the spectrum of what our specialty allows for. Uh, in other words, the, the limits of our scope really is defined by the boundary of the anatomy that we see. Yeah. Now, having said that, I will most generously refer out uh, complicated and surgical cases that I feel other people can manage better than me. And that's the privilege of, you know, being in a major urban area like New York City, where there's so many capable and excellent uh, clinicians. But um, I particularly love 
interactions where people are interested in bettering their life in terms of preventative health, um, using something specific within our specialty um, to look at their overall health, define uh, for themselves goals in terms of helping better those specialty specific items, but then within the context of their overall health. So, you know, looking at things not as just a specialty, but in the in the setting of a holistic sense, um, that's a really gratifying part of what I do. And that's something that had taken time to carve out because that wasn't something that was necessarily trained in me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I over time have really, it's not like the minute you graduate from your, from your program, you're etched in stone and that's it. You just practice what you were taught. I mean, there, there's so much room for bettering yourself and those interactions you have with others continues to teach you a lot about what it is you demand from yourself or what kind of expectations you have. So, you know, my patients are how I learn, you know, and what, what I, accomplish and the satisfaction I get is completely bound by their experience and how they um, benefit from their interaction with me. So it's a two-way street. And obviously, you know, you don't want to paint an overly rosy picture. There is a, a, a huge burden placed on every clinician. You know, you're, um, you're, you're in the grind, right? You're seeing one and then another and then another. And, you know, the, as satisfying as the situation may be, the minute you're done, it's like the the slate is blank and you start mm. all over, right? And mm. so, you know, the, I, it's funny because now that we're in this situation where there's this shutdown, I, I crave those human interactions again. And mm-hmm. when you're in the grind, the the thing that you want most is solitude within yourself because you don't get a moment of, quiet or peace necessarily when you're really busy. Um, you know, and that's interesting to look into, right? It's like the, the grass being greener constantly. There's no perfection yeah. and things are constantly in flux. So you, it sounds like you actually over the years have um, evolved in terms of how you um, use your training as an ENT doctor and, and now provide more of a holistic overall approach as opposed to specifically focus on just a body part. That's right. That's the absolute, I couldn't have said it better myself. Do you find other physicians and doctors are like that? No. Um, I, I, you know, I think that there's a growing interest, but I would say uh, within, you know, specialty care, for sure, very few. Um, there are a number of areas where people are carving out a growing interest in looking into these things like functional medicine. But I, you know, I think that it doesn't really, you don't have to label yourself as a person who quote unquote performs functional medicine or primary care medicine to still interface with someone on a level of prevention because, you know, let's just face it, the whole medical system is built on this concept of waiting at the bottom of the cliff. And, you know, I think it's all of our duties, not just to be there to help them when they're in free fall and need that kind of help, but also to 
use that as an opportunity to to allow people to understand the bigger picture. And, you know, no matter what your background, we all have that ability to to have that kind of influence. Guy, what do you mean by – let me kind of make sure we are on the same page. What do you mean by yeah. holistic versus – yeah, how you so, were trained before when you first came out of training. Right. So, you know, let's put it in the perspective, for instance, of someone who's an anesthesiologist, right? So let's say you okay. see a patient. Yeah. <laughs> I want to speak your language for a little <laughs> bit. So let's say you see a patient who's having some form of elective procedure done, and they come to you and they have the clearance from their primary care doctor, but they're on, an, you know, heart medicines, to help control their uh, high blood pressure and they have diabetes and they have, you know, some uh, weight issues and, mm-hmm. you know, that may be a small 10 to 15 minute interface and you may not see yourself as playing a role in that patient's care beyond the 10 to 15 minutes that you're involved with them. Yes. But I can assure you that patient, when they see you, has this really supercharged impression of everything you say during those 10 minutes and also the aftercare. So, you know, your words are, and your actions are really powerful in that time. And so let's say, you know, you're not in that time going to talk to the patient and tell them how to now newly manage their problems. But a lot of times what I'll see is I'll take somebody through a procedure and the anesthesiologist will give me feedback that, you know, they had a hard time controlling their blood pressure. Um, maybe, after the case, there's a, there's a chance to coordinate back with that primary care uh, provider or even talk to the patient about the fact that, you know, even though everything went fine, you know, this is an opportunity to use this as a lesson and, and look at their uh, as, as an opportunity to improve on themselves, right? So I think too often we, we kind of provide ourselves with those boundaries, like things start and stop right here for my specialty in terms of how I'm involved in that person's care. Uh-huh. And I see all of us as like a network team players building, you know, an understanding for patients as far as the bigger picture. So taking it back to my specialty, a lot of what I see integrates with a lot of their other problems, right? So, you know, and I see that as an opportunity to, to, to tie into those other problems and engage the other team members, uh, you know, so that they don't just think of their problem as I just take this pill and I fix it and that's it. Right. I see. Or I just take this one, th- I remove this one thing and everything's, and yeah. then I'm, I'm done with you. The reductionist mentality, right? It's just mm. this, this idea that I just need to fix this and then it's over, right? Like so much of what we deal with in medicine is not a, you know, the beauty of my specialty to some degree also is there are those moments that are extremely satisfying. This is a problem and I can remove that problem that's bothering that person with, you know, my expertise. Those are really satisfying situations, but that's not the majority of the uh, time that I spend in clinical medicine. The majority of the time are much more complicated. They're not reductionist problems. So that was Dr. Guy Lin. This was just the first half of the interview. The second half of the interview talks more in depth about how he got to become a physician, why he became an ENT doctor, who his mentors were, and what he thought about mentorship, and how important he believes in mentorship. 
and also just a deeper perspective and discussion about how he made changes in his career to become a better physician. So I hope you'll be able to tune in to that episode so you can get a full and complete picture of this interview with Dr. Guylin, which was really wonderful, very thought-provoking. And finally, thank you. Thank you for joining in on this episode and listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. If it's something that's worthwhile to you, please hit that subscribe button. It'll really help elevate the attention to this podcast so that others can also benefit from it as well. You've been listening to Health Careers with Dr. Martin. If you want to find out more about me or about the podcast, please go to healthcareerswithdrmarn.com or hcwithdrmarn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will tune in again. <music>